You're listening to a sermon podcast from Redemption Hill Church, recorded at one of our worship services. Good morning, everyone. Uh, today I'll be reading from uh, Acts chapter 26. So Agrippa said to Paul, You have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hands and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa. I am going to make my defense today about all the accusations of the Jews especially because you're familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth, spent from beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they were willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our twelve tribes hope to attain, as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope, I am accused by Jews, O King. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way the light from heaven, brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goats. And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I have the help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses would have come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things have escaped his notice, for this have not, has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, In a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, Whether short or long, 
I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Then the king rose, and the governor and Bernice and those who were sitting with them. And when they had rejoin, they said to one another, This man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, This man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. These are the true words of the living God. Thank you so much, Michelle, for reading that so wonderfully. Uh, just wanted to say hello to my friend Grace from a foreign land who is serving the Lord, uh, wherever you may be. Where are you, Grace? Can we just say hello? There you are. Great to have you in our midst. Warm welcome to you. So we are continuing in, uh, in the book of Acts. Uh, you may be getting, we'll have some questions about how many court dramas are we going to have? Well, this is the third one in a row, I think. Uh, it's the third time we're going to read an Acts about... Uh, Paul's Damascus Road experience. Uh, so it's obviously a very important thing to Luke, who's the writer of the book of Acts. Why does he have so much courtroom drama? Well, I think he's trying to make the point that the Jews are falsely accusing Paul. He's really done nothing wrong, but they're really, really, really against him. So I think that's part of it. He's also trying to explain how Paul gets to Rome. Ultimately, Paul is going to stand before Nero and uh, loses life, loses head, he gets uh, decapitated in, uh, in Rome later, and so he's, in retrospect, writing Luke to bring us along with the story. So that's part of the reason why some of this courtroom drama is, uh, is uh, accentuated. Well, before we look at the text, I wanted to uh, begin us on a deliberately gloomy note by reading a letter which was written by a lieutenant colonel. Uh, this is in World War I, uh, to a, a mother, a parents of a soldier who was killed in action. So I'm sorry to bring us off on a somewhat despairing note, but uh, hopefully I'll cheer you up by the end. Uh, this is from uh, Lieutenant Colonel C. Crawshay, dated 22 of July 1916. So this is over 100 years. This is World War I. Uh, in the trenches in France, and the letter reads, Dear Mrs. Graves, I very much regret to have to write and tell you your son has died of wounds. He was very gallant and was doing so well and is a great loss. He was hit by a shell and very badly wounded and died on the way down to the base, I believe. He was not in bad pain, and our doctor managed to get across and attend to him at once. We have had a very hard time, and our casualties have been large. Believe me, you have all our sympathy in your loss. We have lost a very gallant soldier. Please write to me if I can tell you or do anything. Yours sincerely, C. Crochet, Lieutenant Colonel. Imagine being the mother or the father receiving that letter. If you have children, imagine receiving a letter that your child has died. Imagine if you don't have children, imagine your parents getting a letter about you and your death. How would they feel? Uh, somewhat um, somber note to begin this morning. Before we jump into the text, uh, I want to give a quick overview of it. And uh, my overview is going to be an extraction of 
the five questions which were asked, well, which appear in the text this morning. If you were following closely, you would have picked up five questions. There are, as it turns out, five protagonists or chief actors in this little uh, passage in chapter 26. And uh, there's a lot of conversation going back and forth. It's in a courtroom setting. There's a judge, and the judge's wife seems to be there, and this Festus character, and, uh, and Paul the accused, and his accusers, and so on. But there are five questions. I'm, I'm going to slightly scramble the order, just so that it, it'll, it'll give us a flow today. But these five questions are this. The first question, which I want us to look at, is uh, in verse, I forget which verse it is, but uh, Jesus says to Saul... Why are you persecuting me? Why are you persecuting me? So that's one question. And, the, and I'm just going to use these questions as headers or as signposts as we work our way and understand this passage. Why are you persecuting me? Question number one. Question number two is a question. So that was a question Jesus asked to Saul. Question number one. Question number two is a question that the accused says to the judge, what Paul says to Agrippa. And this is right at the end. And uh, I think it's verse 27 where he says, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? Question one, why are you persecuting me? Question two, do you believe the prophets? Question three is a question that Paul then puts to the court, and this is in verse eight, and he says, why is it thought incredible that God would raise the dead? So our third question this morning is, why do you think it's incredible that God would raise the dead? Question four is a question that Paul asks Jesus. And this is uh, down there in verse 18, I think. Don't get old. You uh, can't read small text. And uh, Paul says to Jesus, who are you, Lord? So our fourth question this morning is, who are you, Lord? What a great question. Who are you, Lord? And then the last question is right at the end, which is the judge asks the accused. Agrippa asks Paul. And uh, this is in verse 28. Would you persuade me to be a Christian? Would you persuade me to be a Christian? And that's my title for today. Would you persuade me to be a Christian? And so unashamedly, I am talking to those who are not yet Christians, who have not yet put their faith in Christ and repented. I'm talking to you. And I'm imagining within that subset of people who are not yet Christians, there are people who want to ask me a question. Would you persuade me, Mr. Preacher, to be a Christian? And I'm hopefully in the course of the next 30 minutes going to persuade you to become a Christian whoever it may be that you are listening to this. Would you persuade me to be a Christian? Okay, let me just give you a quick, uh, before we get into the drama, I just want to uh, establish our characters because it's, uh, it's a bit of a, a saucy crowd this uh, here today. So the first one is Paul. Okay, we know about Paul, if you've been tracking along with us at ECP. Uh, he's unashamedly preaching about Jesus. He's got into trouble for it. The Jews found him, hauled him in the temple, and now he's before multiple courts, and he's on his way to Rome, where he's going to stand before Nero, as I said. Okay, so that's Paul. What about Agrippa? Well, Agrippa, his real name is Herod Agrippa II. Herod Agrippa II. Now, the word Herod should really trigger, if you are somewhat familiar with the Bible, a whole lot of uh, thoughts about, well, who is Herod? Well, they are a terrible, terrible, terrible crowd. Okay, these guys have got the moral caliber of, I don't know, a slug or something. They are just, they are just very, very immoral characters. His great-grandfather was Herod the Great. Herod the Great killed all the babies under two in a certain town to try and kill Jesus. Okay, that's the great-grandfather. This is the moral caliber of the Herods. 
the grandfather, it's not the great-grandfather, the grandfather is a chap called Herod Antipas. Now, Herod Antipas, he beheaded John the Baptist because some attractive woman danced for him and he wanted to owe her a favor. So some, John the Baptist lost his head, okay? The moral, the moral caliber of these people. The father is Herod Agrippa I, okay? Now, Herod Agrippa I, uh, the Jews didn't really like him. Uh, apparently, he was famously handsome, and he was a playboy. Okay, so just picture that. However you want to picture a 2,000-year-ago handsome playboy. He was like super rich, went into massive debt so that he could then consort with the emperor Tiberius, and he got into favor. No one wanted him in Palestine, so he made his way to Rome and, be and cozied up to the emperor Tiberius. And he got in touch and became friends with Tiberius's kind of son, half-son, called Caligula. Caligula was a terrible, terrible, terrible Roman. And these two then were plotting for Caligula to become the emperor. Unfortunately, the charioteer overheard them in the chariot. And so, Herod Agrippa I got thrown into jail by uh, Tiberius. Tiberius died. Tiberius's true heir should have become the emperor. Caligula, of course, killed that character. Caligula became the uh, emperor, freed Herod Agrippa the first from jail, and then to mock Emperor Tiberius, gave him a pair of golden handcuffs to commemorate his time in jail under Tiberius. And then they lived it up, and you can imagine what they did living it up, these two young, uh, rich, spoiled aristocrats. They were so tight that Herod Agrippa I was present when murderers assassinated Caligula. So he was so thick in the Roman crowd. He then helped to put Claudius, the third emperor, on the throne. Claudius then gave Herod Agrippa I a payback favor by making him the king back in Palestine. He then dies, and his 17-year-old son is King Herod Agrippa II. Okay, you're following all of this. And this is King Herod II, who we are, Agrippa, who we are now talking about here. And this character, then uh, the next emperor, Claudius, dies, and then Nero becomes the emperor, and he becomes friends with Nero. And so Nero puts Herod Agrippa II on the throne. But these are really wicked, wicked men. Character number three is Bernice. Bernice, she's a, she's a wicked auntie, this one. She, she married her uncle. When the uncle died, she then moved in with the king. Power, money, and so on. But then she fell in love with King Herod Agrippa II. And then she ditched the king and then moved in with King Herod Agrippa II. Now, small problem is they were brother and sister. So, that gives you some of the caliber of kind of what's going on here and what Paul is up against. Okay, our fourth character is uh, Festus. Festus is the governor. Oh, Festus married Bernice's sister, who apparently was ravishingly beautiful. So, this is how this whole little family network is playing out here in court. Our fifth character in the drama, who has a main speaking part, is Jesus. It's Jesus. Okay, so that is some context setting the stage for the passage today. Okay, so signpost number one is question number one, which is, why are you persecuting me? This is Jesus to Paul on the road to Damascus. Why are you persecuting me?
And uh, let's read together in verse 9. Paul himself acknowledges that he is persecuting Christ. And let's get some of the detail. He says, I myself was convinced that I ought, I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. He's sending innocent people to, uh, to their death. And I punished them, often in the synagogues. And when he says I punished them, it means they got at least 39 lashes. And I tried to make them blaspheme, and in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. In the name of purity, in the name of holiness, he actually wanted people to lie and to twist their words and to cause blasphemy against God in the name of holiness. In other translations, raging fury reads, I was obsessed. He, he, something get, comes over him, and he even ends up blaspheming God by causing other people to blaspheme God. And he's trying to trick people and trap them and then send them to their death. He's a wicked man at this point, Paul. He's persecuting Christ. Then in verse uh, 12, it says, In this connection I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. And then Jesus interrupts him in this gen genocidal mania of trying to wipe out a religious group. He interrupts him on the road and appears to them in this bright, dazzling light. And he says to him, why are you persecuting me? Why are you persecuting me? But here's the thing about this question, which I want us to just step back from the question and take this point. Don't you think it's even amazing that Jesus is even speaking to him and even asking him the question? If there's an irritating mozzie mosquito buzzing around you, you just want to whack it and kill it, flick it off. Why didn't Jesus just look at Paul and just go, why are you persecuting my church and just flick him aside? Don't you think it's even incredible that Jesus is even speaking to him, let alone asking him a question, let alone engaging with him? And so my first answer to you is, would you persuade me to be a Christian? My first answer to you is this Inherent in this question is an amazing answer as to why you should be persuaded. Number one, why are you persecuting me? The me is a person. The me is real. The me is alive. The me is speaking. The me is engaging with Paul. Why should you become a Christian? Well, because God is a person. He is a person who is pursuing you. He is a person who is hounding you. Just like he was pursuing Paul here with grace what a despicable man he was trying to kill people. This is Paul. Why are you persecuting me? The me is a me who's coming to love him and to find him and to give him love. Over and above this, I want you to see that your deepest desire, and just generalizing it here, your deepest desire is that God would desire you. Your deepest desire is that God would desire you. And we have so many desires in us that we are aiming at the inappropriate or the wrong things. But really, what's inside you at the highest point, at your deepest point, is you actually want to be desired by something of ultimate beauty and ultimate power. 
And here is part of the message of Jesus meeting this man on a road, saying, I desire you. I'm coming to find you. Full of beauty, full of power, who is a person who wants to engage, even to the point of asking a question, why are you persecuting me? Why are you kicking against the goads? The goads were like a sharpened stake so that the oxen, when they were pulling a cart or a plow, couldn't rebel. And if they kicked back, they would puncture their, their ankles. It's, 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 it's inevitable. Like, don't fight the inevitable, kicking against the goads. It's, it's crazy for you to declare war on the God of the universe. And here the point is, why should you be a Christian? Why should you be persuaded? Well, because this great God who you've offended and sinned against is pursuing you, and his desire is for you, and to love you, and to hold you, and he wants to affirm you. That's point number one. Why are you persecuting me? The second uh, question to signpost us is the question that Paul asks Agrippa in verse 27. Do you believe the prophets? Do you believe the prophets? And uh, let's just See how often the prophets or the Old Testament, let's just understand that question is, do you believe the Old Testament? Do you believe this canon of, of Bible which was written up until this point? Do you believe that? And uh, my second reason to persuade you to be a Christian is uh, that the resurrection and the suffering of Christ was spoken about hundreds of years before it happened. It, I'll address that in a moment after we look at this uh, in the text, how many times it gets referenced, the Old Testament. So we begin in verse uh, 3, where uh, Agrippa is intimately acquainted with, um, well, let me read it, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. So Agrippa was well acquainted with the Old Testament. That's what Paul is saying. If you jump to verse 9, sorry, verse 6, and now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our twelve tribes hope to attain, as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope, I am accused by Jews. He's mentioned the word hope three times, and he's saying, you know, Agrippa, you're a fellow Jew, as it were, and you know that the Old Testament has been written for hundreds of years, and one of its major themes is a hope in resurrection. You know that. You know this isn't just some surprise move that God has pulled. He has been building this up for hundreds of years, if not millennia. We think of Job, chapter 19, I know my Redeemer lives, and I will see His face one day in the flesh. We can think of uh, Daniel, chapter 12, talking about seeing multitudes rise from the dead in resurrection. We think of Isaiah chapter 29, talking about a people who are alive in the afterlife. We think of David. You will not abandon your holy one. He will not see the grave. He's going to be resurrected. He's going to come alive. The Old Testament was promising resurrection. This is not a surprise move, is what he's saying. Uh, we can jump to uh, verse 20. To this day I have had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing that what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. Just a repeat point. 
The whole of the Old Testament has been looking forward and promising Jesus to come to die and then to be resurrected. And then to wrap up the point in verse uh, 27, when he says, do you believe the prophets? He says to Agrippa, I know you believe. I know you believe. Why should I persuade you? Why should you be persuaded to be a Christian? Well, this was not just something that just happened and some people invented and made up and it was a fiction. No, it was a cosmic plan by God for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. Not only is there documentation that Christ rose from the dead, but there's this wealth of documentation promising that he would come and that he would rise from the dead. And it's by multiple people over multiple generations in multiple different places. You just can't, that's not a conspiracy. That is God in charge who is communicating to the world, this is going to happen. That's reason number two why I want you to be persuaded. Before we get to our third question, I want to go back to our World War I letter and let you know that the man who was suspected dead was actually in a coma for five days. And so his parents got this terrible letter thought he was dead, and I just want us to rejoice in uh, good news of someone who you thought was dead but is actually alive. It, uh, it's relatively funny, I think, because the Times of London published his death notice. And so uh, we read here, the Times of London wrote to this man, Robert Graves, and said, Dear Sir, we have to acknowledge receipt of your letter with reference to the announcement contradicting the report of your death. You know that famous line of uh, rumors of my death are greatly exaggerated. It's, uh, it's a little like this. And in the Times of London, the editor carries on and he said, We inserted your announcement in our issue of today, Saturday, under court circular, without charge. And we have much pleasure in enclosing here with the cutting of the same. And then they cut out the piece of the newspaper and the cutting says, Captain Robert Graves, Royal Welsh Fusiliers, officially reported died of wounds, wishes to inform his friends that he is recovering from his wounds in Queen Alexander's hospital. Imagine the joy of the parents discovering their child is not dead. Imagine the euphoria. Take that up a notch. Imagine if the child really was dead and then came back to life. How would you feel when you saw a resurrected person? It would change your world. And this is Paul. There is overwhelming documentary evidence of people who saw Jesus not only crucified and dead, certified dead, but who saw him resurrected. If you are really asking about Christianity, you will be persuaded by the facts. And the facts are, Christ was seen alive. And then... 20 years, 15 years, 10 years, 5 years later, however long it was, the persecutor-in-chief of this, what he thought was a rumor or a falsehood that Jesus rose from the dead, Paul of Tarsus, is doing his best to crush this rumor. And guess what? The resurrected Christ appears to him. Great glory. Changes his life. It's one thing for Jesus just to appear to people. It's quite another thing for years later to appear to the person who's trying to crush this whole rumor. And then to appear in glory, in power, in light, with dazzling authority. 
If you're really looking into Christianity, you will be persuaded by these facts. And so uh, this brings us to our third question, which is this. Why do you think it's incredible that God would raise the dead? Why do you think it's incredible that God would raise the dead? So here's the thing. This is my theory. And I'm trying to persuade you here. And the third persuasion is, well, isn't it obvious that if there is a God, He, will, he can do stuff like resurrection? The, the difficulty is not, can God raise someone from the dead and resurrect someone? That, I don't think that's difficult. Because if you think of God, who's a creator, who's all-powerful, who's, who's omnipotent, who's all-knowing, who created the world and the universe and just one, one word, of course He can make a dead person come alive. That's not the difficulty. The, the difficulty is, is there God? But if you agree there is God who's alive and real, then to jump to him coming in flesh is, well, he can do that. Of course he can. And then to see him die for the sins of the world and then for God to raise him, of course God can do that. That's not the difficulty. Let me quote uh, C.S. Lewis. He talks about miracles, the resurrection being the greatest miracle. And C.S. Lewis says this in his book, Miracles a preliminary study, he says, I use the word miracle to mean an interference with nature by supernatural power. Unless there exists, in, it, in addition to nature, something else which we may call the supernatural, there can be no miracles. In other words, if there is a supernatural dimension, then miracles are obvious. Miracles, in fact, are a retelling in small letters of the very same story which is written across the whole world in letters too large for some of us to see the miracle of creation, the miracle of God making people in this beautiful world. If we admit God, must we admit miracle? Indeed, indeed, you have no security against it. That is the bargain. Theology says to you, in effect, admit God and with Him the risk of a few miracles. If once the incarnation happened, it was bound to be followed by the resurrection. Isn't that wonderful? But if you are not a believer in God, then you must face the consequences of your own logic. Then there's no right and wrong. There's no hope. There's no reason. There's no purpose. All of this is just molecules. Okay. Uh, Festus says, and this is in verse um, 20, 24, I think. Uh, Festus pipes up. He interrupts the proceedings. And Festus says, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul! You are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus. But I'm speaking true and rational words. Isn't that wonderful? Christianity is not make-believe. It's not just believe it hard enough and it'll come to pass. It's true and it's rational. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly, for I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this was not, has not been done in a corner. What he's saying is, for years, the whole of Jerusalem has been in uproar about news of someone who was publicly crucified and then publicly resurrected. You know it, Festus. You know it. Don't make us believe that things that happened didn't happen. You know it. And you're denying it. And then you say, I'm out of my mind. I'm just reporting facts, Festus. And my facts are this. I saw Christ resurrected. It's true, and it's rational. Isn't that wonderful? 
Okay, then our fourth question is, who are you, Lord? Who are you, Lord? Who are you, Lord? And that, I think, is a question all of us ask. Who are you, God? And the way Jesus answers that question, who are you, Jesus? Uh, in the next couple of verses, I think is quite beautiful. Jesus' answer to the question, who are you, is somewhat of a biographical sketch, letting us know who he is. Not entirely, because I don't think we can figure him out entirely. But he tells us who he is, because that was the question. And this is his reply. And the Lord said, the Lord. So that's the first one. Who are you? I'm the Lord. The Lord said, I am Jesus. I am Jesus. I'm fully God, and I'm fully man. I'm Jesus. I'm a person. And I've come to find you, and I've come to love you. That's who I am. My desire is for you, Paul, because I love you. Verse 16, but rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you. Who are you, Lord? He's someone who appears. He's someone who comes to us. He's not an absent father. He's not the father you wish you had. He's a father who is close, who is loving, who is near to us, who will send his son to appear to us, to be with us and close to us because he loves us, because he pursues us, and because he finds us in our dirtiest, worst moments. On the road to Damascus. That's who he is. Who are you? I'm full of grace. I'm full of kindness. I'm full of love for you. I'm full of desire for you. To save you from yourself. And to bring you to me. That's who I am. I've appeared to you for this purpose. To appoint you as a servant as witness. He's a master. He can have a servant. He's your master. Who are you, Lord? I'm your master. But I'm a loving master. And I've got a plan for you. I've got a purpose for you. And I'm coming to give it to you. That's who I am, says Jesus. And I want you to be my witness. I want you to talk about me, to the things to which you have seen me, and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles. Who are you, Lord? I'm a deliverer. I'm going to be kind to you. I'm going to help you. Maybe you need help in your life at the moment. He's come to help you. That's who he is. Come to deliver you. Uh, to the Gentiles, to whom I'm sending you. He can send you. That's who he is. He's a sender. To open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. Who, who am I? Who are you? I'm light. I'm God himself. That they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Who are you, Lord? He's the one who wants to forgive your sins. He's the one who wants to sanctify you. That word just means cleanse. He wants to clean you. Why should you be persuaded to become a Christian? Well, because he wants to love you. He wants to forgive you of your sins against you. He wants to die for your sins. He wants to clean you and wash you and sanctify you and include you into him. This is who he is. And then he carries on and he says, I declared this message. And then halfway through verse 20. And the message was that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. Who else is Jesus? He's a king who is worthy of our lives lived for him completely and utterly. As we turn from wicked things, as we turn from the ways we've hurt him, and as we turn to him. That's my fourth reason why you should be persuaded. It's because it's a picture of magnificent grace and love. The God who comes to us to find you.
And then finally, the question is this. Number five, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And uh, Paul's response is this. Whether short or long, this is in verse 29. I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. And Paul's response is, will you persuade me? He's like, absolutely. But it's a bit of a clumsy phrase here. I would to God. I would to God. I would to God. What does that mean? Well, if you kind of dig into the Greek a little bit, it means I wish to God. It actually means I pray to God. He's praying. He's appealing to God. God, can you save this wicked, terrible man, King Herod Agrippa II? Do you want to persuade me to be a Christian? I'm praying it because I know God wants to save you. His heart towards you is to save you. Fifth reason why you should be persuaded is because it's God's inclination. It's His wish. It's His will. It's His desire to save you. And then finally, to all the Christians here, uh, that was a sermon to uh, folks not Christian, but uh, to all of you here who are Christians, uh, your takeaway for this is on that fifth question. Can we be a people of prayer and of witness to speak words of truth, rationality, and persuasion to people about this great gospel? And can we be a people who prays and who loves and who is Jesus' feet and hands like Paul is? to follow and to pursue and to love and to seek out uh, people who desperately need to hear this message. Amen. Let's pray for a moment. Lord, thank you for this great story of your love, of your pursuit of people of Paul, as you appeared to him, as you found him, as you loved him, as you reached out for him and welcomed him into your family and into your kingdom. Lord, for those who are here today who are not persuaded, I ask, Lord, that you would persuade them with your power, with the truth as it's recorded. Holy Spirit, would you speak, would you reveal, would you minister? Lord, would the persuasion be of you, to your great grace, to your love, to the hope that is inherent in you? Lord, would you reach out and find people who don't yet know you, who are in sin and rebellion against you? And Lord, for the rest of us who already have met you on the Damascus Road, would you help us, Lord, to, to share this word, to share this message? to proclaim it, to witness it, to have deeds in keeping with repentance, to walk with you, to know you as the one who is full of light, full of love, full of grace. Lord, thank you for changing us. Thank you for coming and rescuing us. Who alone can rescue, Lord, but you and you alone. You've been listening to a sermon podcast from Redemption Hill Church. You can find more of our sermons online at www.rhc.org.sg